1: We are in the last week of Black History Month, and I have two amazing episodes to share with you this week. This episode today is with a friend of mine called Matteo Ascarippo, and he wrote a New York Times bestselling book, Black Buck. And we had a chat about Black Buck. We had a chat about why he wrote, why he writes. We had a chat also about what it was like for him prior to writing this book. So he worked in tech and he explains what it was like being working in corporate and um, being so young and getting into a position of quite a senior uh, leadership. We talk about brooklyn weather and versus the london weather that we were having back in may i think it was and we bonded over being jamaican and guys i didn't do this on purpose i didn't strategically pull together all of the jamaican content that i have and put them all together in one month but you know what they say all roads lead to jamaica And we had an amazing conversation. We spoke about optimism as well. Towards the end of the show, we have a conversation around optimism. And, you know, Matteo always makes me think about stuff. um, Because he says I made him think about the questions. But he also makes me think about how we are making change. How we are shifting the the gaze uh, from, you know, the typical white characters that we see and kind of putting black characters in particular positions to change narratives and to change stories and just to make us be a part of the, the zeitgeist, the cultural kind of makeup of what's going on now. And it was an uplifting, Um, conversation and I really appreciate sitting down in conversation with Matteo and um, we had the pleasure of meeting him this year and the recording that you're gonna hear now was done remotely but we met up this year when he was um, in the UK and it was it was a great great connection um, and definitely a, a good soul so one thing about this audio there's something happened with the. Um, I usually record. I usually have two different audios, and I edit them both. But for some reason, this is all together in one audio stream. Um, so, you know, if it sounds a bit funny, if it sounds different to how they usually sound, just bear with me. Um, that's why it was just there was just some, there I couldn't. Do much with it, um, editing wise. So, uh, yeah. But um, it's an amazing conversation, and I'm so happy to have had it, and I'm grateful as ever. As ever, though, please I'll be even more grateful for you rating and reviewing the episode and sharing it far and wide. Um, and make sure you go out and get Black Buck. Matteo is going to tell you all about the book in this episode look forward to hearing your thoughts talk soon here's mateo welcome mateo to time to talk how are you doing sir how are you doing
0: i am doing well it's a sunny morning over here in brooklyn so no real complaints how are you i'm doing great
1: uh very warm afternoon. We had a, like, I don't know if you're much aware of the British weather um, a little bit system. But the beginning of, well, most of May was wet. Most of May was raining. Wow. And um, it was miserable. And everybody was miserable. Mm. And it was just this thing. You looked outside <laughs> and you're like, this can't be May. This cannot be life. <laughs> like." We literally had a whole of last year. Um, and it was a brilliant summer last year. But we were all locked inside for mm. the obvious reason the elephant in and outside of the room oh yeah and you know it was just um that and then i was thinking how can may be so wet and grimy anyway so wow. we came to june and it's just been sunny and warm ever since so no blessings take them with it blessings take where brother take them where you can blessings but here chatting to you Matteo, because we want to talk to you about your new york times best-selling book black buck
0: Oh yeah. And um, you know,
1: I, you know, I don't know what it's like. I mean, I've just released my book in April when people start. Congrats, I saw like, that. Yeah, thanks. When you start people are talking to me at the book, I just do this thing and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like oh my god. But yeah. um yeah, it's doing wildly successfully. But I before we get into that, mm-hmm. I wanted to um just chat to you and get to get to know a bit about you first, but As my listeners will know, I am building up a time to talk playlist Mm. and I am super interested in what my guests have to offer that playlist because, you know, it's it's a testament to the kind of guests I have that is such an eclectic playlist right now. Um, I haven't haven't built it out yet, but I'm putting them together and I'm going to release it at some point in the future and um i want to know which songs or two songs that you would want to add yeah two songs that you want to have on there that represent you
0: Mm. that's tough to uh distill me into two songs i'm a a big audiophile i love music man i love a lot of british music actually like a ton um and but the ones that I would contribute to your playlist, which I believe represent me in some ways, as well as uh, my novel, would be Black by uh, a musician named Buddy. Buddy, okay. And let's also go with Get Free Okay. by Mareba. Okay, by Mareba. All right, why did you choose those two? Um, get free for me resonates deeply because i believe that freeing yourself and then in turn helping to free other people however you define freedom um it's one of my main goals in life to help people live more freely to help people live more authentically to help people chase their dreams and in some cases achieve them if possible so that song and the refrain trying to get free um really strikes a chord in me and black by buddy. There's actually two songs. There's a black two as well that he came out with, but black by buddy is just so unapologetically black, you know, and embracing the triumphs of what it means to be black, the the 360 degree view, Mm -hmm. which is reflective of my own black experience and the experience that I wrote about in my book. You know, we're gonna get into it, but my book, it's not 400 pages of tragedy and trauma or doom and gloom, even though those are definitely aspects in it because they're aspects of the black experience, I'd say for for anyone who is black um, globally perhaps, but there's also triumph, success, laughter, levity, Um, so, so that song, just how hard hitting it is, uh, I can't help but smile when I think of it. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm going to add those to the list. I think that you've done an amazing job
1: at selling those songs. (laughs) And, um, I'm going to add those onto the list. I'm looking forward to, to delving into that. I think that music is something that is so communal, you know, there's something about Mm -hmm. it. Like you can really pick up a person's kind of ideas of themselves and, what they, the way that they look at the world through music. So I think it's important that as part of the time to talk community, you kind of rally it together and have a listen to kind of get a collection, collective idea. I mean, on there is, you know, will be rock and it's, there's been, there's pop, there's, mm-hmm. you know, soundtracks, there's Disney soundtracks, <laughs> there's so many different things. So Disney. Think, yeah. Disney <laughs> soundtracks. It's going to be so funny. Um, so I will let you know when that's out and I can just drop you a line with that too. Can't wait. Um. So, Matteo, uh, let's chat a bit about where you come from. Where you're coming from, man. Um, like, what was it like growing up? For you. When did you decide that you wanted to be a writer?
0: That's a tough question. Um... So when I was younger, I would write, but it's not like I was writing story after story. I liked to read, but it's also not like I was consuming 10 books a week. Um, we have this thing, I guess Scholastic is is worldwide. We had a Scholastic magazine, a Scholastic book club. And I remember being in fourth or fifth grade, ordering books from it and, you know, reading and, and enjoying it. For me, um, the written word was always very important in my home. My grandmother, who comes from Jamaica, and my mom is from Jamaica, too, um, but my grandmother was an English teacher, and she lived with us, and she raised us, and she taught me how to read. And she really instilled in us this love of not only reading, but also writing. Um, And even my grandfather, my grandfather wasn't living with us. He was still in Jamaica, but I would hear stories of him. And, you know, as you would know, Alex, uh, a term of endearment for an older gentleman in Jamaica is Moss, right? So they'd call him Moss Will. Sure. And they'd roll up to his house on a hill. And I'm from the country in Jamaica, a place really? called K Valley in St. Anne Parish. Okay. And yeah, they would roll up and then he would be telling them about Japan or about Egypt or Italy. And they'd say, Moss Will, when was the last time you went? he had never went. (laughs) He had never visited any of these places, but he was so well read that he could conjure up um, these landscapes and and these pictures and and these concepts from these places so vividly. So that was my life growing up. And I wrote a story here and there. Um, As I got older, I was actually Reading less, I wasn't reading a ton, uh, but I was always writing, you know, whether it was for school or when I started working at the startup, trying to write persuasive and compelling emails. Um, when I was working at this startup, my idea was that I would get in, I would learn from as many people as I could, including the CEO, who was my mentor, and then I would leave and start my own company. And after that, maybe when I was 40, 50 or 60, I would write a business book detailing how I did it. You know, we, these, yeah, yeah. these business books are, are so ubiquitous. Uh, they're, they're everywhere. Um, but it was when I was working at that startup and I became disillusioned with the world of startups and sales uh, in 2016, after having been there for around four years, that I turned to writing as an outlet. And then later on, writing fiction as a specific form of salvation. Yeah
1: what was the particular experience at the at the startup i think that when we are uh, you know when we are we you know when you're young and you're black and you're trying to make your way mm-hmm. in all this stuff um i came up through journalism i was in mm-hmm. traditional journalism the newsroom mm you know, there's a story down in Westminster, go get it. There's something yeah. happening down in this part of England, drive there. Not this digital thing. stuff. Not this digital stuff, like pulling, yeah. you know, it was still quite digital, but it was very like grassroots, you know, get mm-hmm. to the, get to the story and find out what's hot sort of thing. And um, so I had a very particular experience and my listeners know this. It was hard to <laughs> put it yeah. that way, but what kind of startup was it? Was it like a tech startup? Was it, mm-hmm. Cause I always, yeah, I was always had these, I always had these fantastic, fantasies of working in a tech startup you know you walk in with your coffee from starbucks and you are just like yeah start at 10 a.m probably go in and out message on slack do these little bit yeah. so what was it what was it like for you if you kind of want to break down a bit of the experience there
0: sure it was a it was a tech startup and specifically it was education tech okay. um so we were we were selling uh, videos to help, initially to help people learn how to use the internet, 60 to 90 second videos, micro learning, okay. um, so that anyone, uh, whether you know, you're know you're 15 or you're 50, um, the ever-changing landscape of the tech world and social media and all these updates and all these new things coming out that you could not only learn how to use them, but stay abreast of the changes. So I came in as an intern when I was about 21. Um, I applied there to write some of their video content. And this was, again, I would, I didn't look at myself as a writer, but uh, I was applying to a bunch of jobs and I had graduated from university. And after the second interview, they said, listen, we really like you, but we hired two other guys, but we'd like you to intern here. Mm -hmm. And I said, intern. Like I graduated 10%, top 10% from a university, you know, and I had friends that were making 65, 70,000, uh, out. And they said, yeah, we want you to intern here for free. Oh. And something told me to do it though. Right. Oh. Those types of things don't fly as often these days, uh, at mm. least over here in the States. Um, Younger folks who are interning are demanding pay or being paid more than in the past. So something told me to do it. My parents told me not to. My friends thought that I was crazy, but um, I was drawn to this world of startups. I was drawn to this belief that these people thought they could change the world. Mm. Um, Within startups, there's somewhat of a colonial mindset, manifest destiny of sorts, that we are the chosen ones. You know, we are the ones who will be going against the odds in order to, and this is the word that's often used, disrupt the status quo. And it's hard to not be drawn to that if you are an ambitious individual. And I would say also an ambitious um, young black individual who wants to make his or her their mark on the world and is being told that you can. We see this in my book as well. So for me, I was interning and I was having a blast. I wasn't making any money and I'd have to wake up at 4am with my mother. My mother is a a nurse and she works in New York City. And I was commuting from where I grew up initially, which is Long Island about, it depends on where you live, but where we lived was about an hour, an hour and 15 minutes from uh, Manhattan. So I'd wake up at 4 a.m., she'd drive me in. I would sleep on a friend's couch for an hour or two. And then at this time, I was rolling in around like 9.30 or 10 a.m., mm-hmm. as you said, Alex. Yeah. And I was doing community management and social media. Mm-hmm. Months later, I was hired officially. And then months after that, the CEO said, um, we need to monetize as, as many startups should or would. And he asked me to start the sales team with him was 21 about to be 22. There are about 20 people in the organization. They put a desk in the middle of the office and then there was me cold calling. I had no idea what I was doing. I wasn't a prodigy from the jump. You know, I wasn't Mm -hmm. like I picked up the phone and I got a million dollars. Um, I was like, (coughs) hello, this (coughs) this is Mateo. I had people laughing at me. I had people putting me on speaker for their friends to ridicule me in their offices. Uh, I almost got fired a handful of times. But fortunately, you know, I had I had the CEO who was my mentor. I had another co-founder who uh, was also teaching me the ways. Mm-hmm. And I had people who believed in me. So I, I, I fortunately got it. Um, the company grew within two, two and a half years from around 20 to 230 people. The sales team from me to 90. And I was now 24, managing 30 people Um, 30 primarily cold callers and people responding to inbound leads. And I was making over six figures. So I was a top dog. I was one of the few Black people in the company, only uh, a handful, maybe two or three uh, that were a director level or above. But to be honest, by that point, and we see this in the narrative of Black Buck as well, my debut novel, I'd lost myself. We have the verbiage now. I was in the sunken place where I felt like many people are misled to believe, um, someone like Kanye, right? That you transcend, yeah, I see you almost laughing. You transcend blackness in a way when you have power, status, and money, but that never happens. Yeah. That never happens. So, every once in a while, if we would hire uh, someone or if I would hire someone and I would be giving them instruction, and I wasn't the type to say, do what I say. That's not my style whatsoever. I need buy-in. I want people to feel you know, mission-driven. Um, I would see it in their eyes, some resistance at first, that I might be the first, not just Black person, but the first person of color that they've ever had to listen to or take instruction from.
1: So then I'd say, oh,
0: still Black, still Black. So that was a a bit of my experience. And then eventually uh, I woke up even more. And by that point, I couldn't stay there anymore. So I left in 2016. Okay. It's very interesting what you say. There's so
1: many parts of that that I just relate with generally. It's that level of you're working in these spaces, you're commanding a particular level of respect and authority, but they are still looking at you as this Black Man, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I find that really interesting. I know for me personally, I dealt with the lack of trust that came Mm. with me being, you know, somebody who would be self-starting, go out and find his stories and do those things. How did you deal with that sort of level of, you know, that feeling of distrust or just feelings of them looking at you, mean like, well, still black, (laughs) you know, just like you know, you're talking to me as if you have a right because it's a, I think like in America, that's where the class, the class and caste issue Mm -hmm. really kind of comes to play. It's this like, Mm -hmm. well, who is this black guy telling me what to do sort of thing.
0: Yeah. So that's, that's a great question. And and I suppose this is one of the aims of the podcast to discuss feelings, right? There's people typically don't ask that in interviews. You know, I've done so many at this point, no one has really asked, you know, what did that feel like? Um, So I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, for me, <laughs> I didn't get down. I didn't really feel bad because I was a top dog at this point. So they were going to learn eventually. <laughs> and, and it would be to their advantage to learn quicker than later. They were going to learn one way or another that um, not that there was a hierarchy, but who I was and what I was about. And that I wasn't someone who just talked, but I was someone who did. And I wasn't someone who just tried to um, just tried to tell people what to do, but I was more so someone who liked to inspire, who, who liked to motivate through doing. And if they still didn't want to get with the program, then it would be very likely that they wouldn't be successful because I was, I was dedicated to helping people be successful. Now where I erred um, I erred in, in many ways. I made many errors, right? I was 24, managing 30 people. I was so young. Yeah, was but strong. one way that I erred is that I didn't manage people. I treated them as employees, Mm -hmm. And I found that that is one of the uh, most detrimental aspects of working in a business or a corporate America or startups, you know, wherever in the world is that people are often regarding you as an employee versus an individual versus as a person. And they're looking to get as much productivity out of you as possible. And I made that mistake as well. But to go back to what you said earlier about how you envision startups, the startup I worked at. Um, there would be people that would come in at ten or so, but those were engineers. Engineers get a lot more leeway, uh, just due to the way that their minds work and the way that they are productive. I was in sales. The sales, <laughs> the sales environment that I worked at was extremely militant, mm-hmm. very militant, where there was not a lot of room for error. If you made mistakes, um, they would be brought to your attention. They'd be brought to the attention of the entire sales organization publicly, and you would, if you didn't hit your number for a month or two, you'd be put on a PIP, a performance improvement plan. And then if you didn't hit that, you were out. And it wasn't personal. Um, So for me, I translate that environment and atmosphere in the book.
1: Mm -hmm. And I would
0: say that for anyone who reads the book and finds that environment of someone, that's the name of the startup, S-U-M-W-U-N, to be extremely volatile and strict and intense and wild, I have to let you know is a somewhat watered down version <laughs> of the place that I worked in, and also the places that I've experienced uh, vicariously through other people. Yeah. Do you think? Uh, how could that? How could that? Before we get into
1: the like onto the book specifically, how could that have experience have been better? Do you think a performance coach? Do you think a therapist in there? like you can imagine someone, you know, you can imagine sales is quite, because I heard that sales is one of the the, the, the top, one of the top kind of profession, not necessarily professions, but a lot of Americans is, Americans is quite high up on the, on the bar for sales and selling. There's a mm-hmm. lot there. Um, and I can imagine it being quite intense. My, I've got family members who are in sales and they've told me that it is, it is intense and you know if you don't reach the quota you don't get your bonus and you know it's just all these different things it's a lot of status and I guess it's a very masculine kind of
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, environment as well
0: so there are, two,
1: there are two questions in there how could that have been managed better but how did you how how did you experience the sort of masculine nature of the sales kind of department that you were in, especially as you were Mm -hmm. running and managing, um, quite a large amount of people.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll start backwards. Um, sales is extremely testosterone driven. Um, it is, it is, uh, extremely American, right? I I say that sales is as American as apple pie, (laughs) baseball and slavery. It is just, it's just so American, even though, right, speaking oh, wow. with a British audience, and I imagine that many British people are listening, we know that um, slavery is not an American phenomenon and that we don't have a monopoly on racism. Mm-hmm. Um, listen, I listen to Dave. Come on. My man, Dave, is always spitting. I, love <laughs> I see you. Yeah, I love Dave. But uh, I actually saw him in concert here. Okay, uh, I yeah. brought my younger brother to see him in concert in New York City. Okay. Um, Big fan so he, of top so he was one of
1: the American, he was one of the British songs that you the British artists that you listen to, right?
0: Oh yeah, he's one. He's one. But at the sake of sounding, I don't know if Dave is considered basic. That's um, okay. maybe stormzy would be, but I love Loyal Carner. Um, oh, okay. I like Chip. What? I like Mahalia. Um, uh yeah, Sinead Harnett, um, okay. Little Sims, of course, okay. uh, Lady Lecher. Okay, uh, all right. Yeah, yeah, come on, man. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, in okay,
1: because most people stop at Stormzy.
0: Or oh, you stop at AJ Tracy or something. Oh, yeah, nah, wow. man.
1: Oh, like you're I'm actually like it. Lady Leisha. Lady Leisha is like
0: deep yeah. in the in this yeah.
1: little Sims. Okay, cool. We can, all right. it,
0: it comes it comes from my, my writing routine. Like part of my writing routine is I watch like two to, two hours of music videos every oh, okay. day, like before I write. But anyway, going back, so um <laughs> the masculinity can and often is very toxic. Mm -hmm. These sales organizations are overwhelmingly male and overwhelmingly white males and overwhelmingly young. So you can imagine them being like frat houses in certain ways and that type of behavior um, encouraged. Many sales organizations or directors of sales or even CEOs say that they want to hire people who were athletes. So imagine someone going from being, you know, a 22 or 21 year old college athlete to now being in a sales organization where it's very competitive. You bring some of those traits in there, making it inhospitable to people who don't fit that status quo. So people who are of color, women, and so forth. Um, So I experienced that. And I can say, you know, with, with some regret that I was likely a part of that as well, even though I didn't fit that mold of being, you know, white and a college athlete and so forth. I was so bought in and I was so propped up that you asked how did I deal with people regarding me as like, oh, I gotta listen to this black guy. Part of it was, was me bolstering an arrogant male persona, right, of like, huh, they're gonna find out one way or another, like I'm not even tripping about it. Mm-hmm. Um, to go To go to the first question of what could have been better, what could have been better is if we made it a priority consistently to stomp out um, toxic behavior. What would have been healthy and I think is, is um, an issue for many startups is if we didn't feel this immense pressure every single day of every single month to hit these goals that are higher than what actually even needs to be hit. Right. There are organizations that you have goals that you need to satisfy for your board to be happy. Mm -hmm. But then there are some very ambitious CEOs and and co-founders who say, forget that we're going to add another 10 to 15 percent on top of that. To blow it out of the water to show everyone in New York or San Francisco or Austin or the or London or Dublin or wherever you are that we are the top people. there's this hubris in there that puts this pressure on these younger folks to do whatever it takes, and that will often manifest negatively, especially uh, if there's alcohol and drugs and other things involved on the weekends um, among your among your workmates That is super. There's a lot, man. Yeah, <laughs> There's a like, lot. Do you
1: know what? Yeah, it's definitely that thing. When you're black and you're in these spaces, um, you're it's like you have to try to assimilate mm-hmm. to something in order for you to not necessarily be seen. I think yes. that that's what it is as well. Cause you are trying to fit in with the default. In the, in the office, in that place, and your particular experience, the sales, you have to fit, try to fit mm-hmm. in with the defaultness. Now, if we go onto Black Buck um, and that was kind of, you know, Darren Black Buck's experience yes. in, the, in the book, you know, recognizing he's the only black man in mm-hmm. this space and what that looks like for him. I want to just as a quick note, the name of the book, mm-hmm. Black Buck. Yes. I have a theory, but explain why you chose that name.
0: Sure. yeah, there are there are multiple meanings to the name. There is the fact that uh, Darren is renamed as Buck and he's black. Uh, the fact that he worked at Starbucks. And he comes into this organization and one person knows he's at Starbucks, but he disguises his name as uh, his naming of Buck or renaming of Darren as Buck because he's going to make them all a million bucks. Um, there is the concept of black wealth and attaining financial freedom, which I think needs to be discussed more in our community. Um, and then there is the historical connotation. And for those who don't know the black buck during in slavery or enslavement, was the enslaved individual who the white enslavers believed it was the, it was a male, was untamable, unruly, was going to burn down the plantation, steal the piggies and chickens and all of that, and steal their women and run away. Now, my protagonist or the protagonist of the book, it doesn't really feel like when this book came out, it doesn't really feel like it's mine anymore, you know. Yep. And 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 I'm I'm happy with that. That people who read it take a a piece of it with them so the protagonist darren who's renamed buck he is not burning down these workplaces but he is burning down what they symbolize at least for a while so that's the energy that is coursing through the book and that is why i believe that the title was so apt now there are there are some folks who especially some older black folk who read the title and they're like what what is this? <laughs> what's this about? <laughs> I'm not going to read it. And there's other people who say, I got to read it. I got to figure out what's going on. And then they understand. So I bring that up to say that the title wasn't intentionally to provoke, but I believe that it was appropriate. Um, and that it was a reclamation of sorts.
1: Mm-hmm. I, when I, when I got the book, I was like, okay, let me just meditate on this title just for a little bit. <laughs> I'm thinking, what does it mean? What does it shout for me? So I, so I got the enslaved um, connotation. And then I did think about the black dollar, We've mm-hmm. got we've we've got an initiative in the UK um, set up by an artist called Swiss um, about uh, called Black Pound Day. It's the first Saturday of, of every, yeah, the first Saturday of every month since um, it started last year. But the first Saturday of every month, people are encouraged to, especially people in the Black community, are encouraged to um, buy from Black-owned businesses, specifically in the UK, because. It's exactly what you said about Incredible. those conversations around black wealth. We've got so many black businesses mm-hmm. who people expect to be like Amazon or expect yes. them to be like you know one of these other established you know companies that have a lot more money and a lot more resources mm-hmm. so they can just they can deliver your product the next day. They can mm-hmm. um you know get your product across the city um Relatively quickly, um, and one example I had was I I bought some books from a, a black bookstore in this. I'm in northwest London, I and um, I bought it from southeast London, which is and it's a, London's a huge city, so mm. getting across it is long anyway. But wow. um, it took around. Four to six weeks for the book to come. Whoa, what? And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, what is going on? But then you could have gone there. Yeah, you could have gone there, but obviously the pandemic, so you couldn't really go. Sure, sure yeah. But like, you could have gone there, you know, in, a, in an everyday situation, a regular situation. I would have gone down, and I would have been like, oh, like this is a new bookstore. What's going on? And I would have bought a book there, you know, talk to the book owner, talked to the bookshop owner, have a yeah. look, and then. But I got a very heartfelt phone call. Because, you know, as soon as Black Crown Day happened wow. or people started buying, you know, people, you know, as soon as uh, the killing of George Floyd happened, people were super interested in black business and all and everything black. And mm-hmm. the the owner was very much like, oh, you know, there were, there's so much, so many orders have come in. Like, we've never had this amount of orders. We do not know how to process this. Like, we yes. don't have the staff. We don't have the infrastructure. We don't Same have, Same thing know, happened
0: here. Same right. thing happened.
1: So so much was going on. And then so she gave me a phone call and she was like, I'm so sorry, it's going to be delayed and that. And then when it came, it came and she had an amazing like personalized note in there, whatnot, Mm. and then that, and and even the fact that it was late, I forgot that I bought it. So I was like- It made it worth it. Yeah. Yeah, But but when you, I had the phone call, I had the note, it was like, and it was very personal to the situation. Now, Mm. when we look at that kind of as the, on the wider scope of capitalism, we're Mm -hmm. losing that personal kind of touch to yes. this the stuff like we don't you know everybody wants to be bigger and more and better and powerful and it's commercialization not personalization there we go so it becomes all of that and I think um and I just wanted to just yeah so tap into what you said about we need to have more conversations around black wealth in the community mm-hmm. and why do you think we aren't having those conversations
0: well I'm not gonna say that we aren't there are I mean, right, your perspective uh, Yeah. uh, There are people who are discussing that. I mean, one of my favorite people who I admire who is now gone was Nipsey Hussle. Nipsey Hussle preached about black entrepreneurship, about community, you know, Jay-Z does in certain ways. So conversations are happening. um, But I think that they need to happen more. And I think people have to feel comfortable having them, but perhaps people don't talk about them all the time because there is uh, a knowledge gap, right? Where we say, well, you know, real wealth is for white people. You know, I mean, in, in, in America, as I would imagine is uh, to a certain extent in the UK as well. Um, there is extreme wealth inequality due to us not having been able to attain generational wealth. Absolutely. Right. Um, then there are times even let's, let's talk about, for example, cryptocurrency. Okay. Right. Yeah. I was, I was, and, and I'm not someone who's extremely well-versed in it, but I invest mm-hmm. and I would post about it every once in a while, or I would talk to, you know, uh, friends of color and black friends about it. And they'd be like, nah, man, I don't really know about all that. Like, I don't really know about all that, but all these other people know about all that. I was that black You know what friend. I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, I was understand like, because It is, too much. It is somewhat esoteric. <laughs> i just can't do it it's it's too much esoteric we don't fully understand it but there are people that are taking advantage of it and Mm -hmm. making millions and it's not even about making millions it's about you put in 50 dollars, you flip that to 300 Mm -hmm. right you just made 250 on it so i think that it's the same thing in terms of startups to a certain extent and startup sales where there is a, a group out there in the uk called the Black Tech Sales Network. Okay. And they are a group of Black sales individuals and Black salespeople. And part of one of their tenants is to reach out to a couple hundred uh, Black and Brown students, or maybe they're in uni. I'm not sure, like the, the exact age group, but showing them I am a Black salesperson, you can be that too. Because how often do you see Black people in sales or at startups or, or what have you? So there, it could come down to us not seeing people in these positions and making us believe that it's attainable unless we rap, unless we play a sport, unless we do this, that, and the other, but we do exist. you know. All of us doing these myriad of professions and all of us chasing our dreams and achieving them and being successful. So that's why I think it's on us to have these conversations more, to be transparent about the paper and to make sure, I guess, before all of that, that people understand that they are of value and they should be compensated accordingly. Too often do we say, let me me take this cut or let me not ask for more just in case I don't get this job that I really want or I've been here for about a year, I know I've done better than all these other people, but let me not ask the promotion because I've just been gaslit to made as though I should feel happy to be here. Mm -hmm. There's so much of that. You know, even, even where I am now, this is the last thing I'll say on this, where I am now, I've had conversations with people in, you know, Hollywood for the last year or so. And I know what I'm about. I know what I want to happen. And every once in a while, someone will say, I mean, isn't it just great that you're here? And I'm like, yo, forget that. Like, I'm grateful. I am grateful, of course, every single day, I'm grateful for where I am and, and what I'm doing, but <laughs> you're not gonna give me a crumb and tell me to feel full. Absolutely,
1: So absolutely. I think that's and I think that, that is that sums up a lot around how black people tend to really feel. It's that feeling mm. when when, they, when we go into those spaces, especially if you end up in the in the high flying law firms, in the finance yeah. firms, in journalism, in teaching, oh, you should be grateful that you're here. You should be grateful yeah. that you're here. You got on the scholarship. Oh, he's a scholarship. Oh, okay. <laughs> like as, as little as as far down as school. Not even as far down as school. Right? Like it, it, every time I mention, there's something in my mind pops up new. Being in the country, yeah. <laughs> like you know, a lot of people are typically coming from conditions that are not of the same um, quality or standard of living that is America slash the United Kingdom slash Canada, and it's that feeling of oh, you should be happy and lucky that you're here, you know. And it's just one. You of those should be things. lucky that we're here.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah, so it's just one of those things, and I just think that that is something that's really interesting. Um, what is your what is your vision of the of the new American
0: dream? I guess in my in my small way, mm. um, a few things. When you ask what is my vision for the new American dream, it would be that when anyone thinks of opportunity in America not only who is receiving it, but more so who is dispensing it that we don't immediately think of a white man or a white male. And in terms of what I'm doing, at least with this specific book, Black Buck, I am creating a new salesperson, a black man for the world to root for and at times hate so that we don't immediately think of Jordan Belfort and the Wolf of Wall Street, right? Played by Leo. Um, that we don't immediately think of Alec Baldwin in *Glengarry*, Glenn Ross, or Michael Douglas in *Wall Street*, or Vin Diesel in *Boiler Room*, or um, you know Willie Loman, the character of *Death of a Salesman*. Even though in the UK, I believe last year he was played by Wendell Pierce, Wendell black Pierce, man.
1: Wendell Pierce, yeah. Man.
0: Which, which is, which is exactly what I'm trying to do with this book. But again, on a a grander scale, I think that we need to re-engineer. We as people need to re-engineer our psyches about who comes to mind when we think about opportunity. Because if the first person who comes to mind isn't someone who is reflective of people like us, right? Then I think that subconsciously or even on a spiritual level, we believe that we aren't as deserving of opportunity, or that we aren't deserving of being in a position to dispense opportunity to other people. So that would be my idea for the new American dream. Restoring
1: and distancing ourselves from the default and mm-hmm. creating a new default. Or well, not exactly, even that, just, a, just a new vision for what that looks a like. A new vision, yeah. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, Okay. I wanted to, uh, I've got that. I usually have uh, towards the end, just these like long few questions just to kind of see where, to see where you go with them. Um, And they're always interesting. So, um, and I call them my resilient questions. Hmm. Um, Yeah. It's basically just scenarios. Um, We'll start easily. All right. Um, You know, to some extent. Um, What is the quote that has changed your life the most? Damn. Yeah, this isn't. There's, no, there's, n- there's, n- there's never an easy question with me, actually, to be fair.
0: Um, I will read it for you. <laughs> for it. It's, this, is, this is one of them, and this is the one that's most readily available, and I'll read it to you because it's on my desktop. Um, I don't look at it every day, but I still have it on my desktop since August 2019, I see. And I will say who said it at the end. I tell my students, when you get these jobs that you've been so brilliantly trained for, just remember that your real job is that if you are free, you need to free somebody else. If you have some power, then your job is to empower somebody else. This is not just a grab bag candy game. And that was from the esteemed Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. So that is a a quote that um, I try to live by as often as possible. You know, I am learning. There are people who are dispensing opportunity to me. There are people who are opening my eyes to things and freeing me in ways that I haven't been free um, beforehand. And at the same time, I am looking to do the same for others when possible and with grace and humility.
1: Love that. Love Toni Morrison. I was so gutted and devastated when she passed away. There's there's several people that you, that in life, you feel like like you really want to meet Mm -hmm. in just in some, in any kind of shape, way, shape or form. And yeah, at yeah, first it was Maya Angelo, and, and, mm. like, and, <laughs> and then she passed and I was like, and then Penny Morris and then she passed I was like, oh, retrospectively, it was James Baldwin. And I was like, mm. why couldn't I have been alive when he was? <laughs> um, I know, I know. So, uh, yeah, very, very much so. Um, how do you practice self-compassion?
0: I try not to be too hard on myself about things. Um, if I make a mistake, I do my best to understand why the mistake was made and then not mistake and excuse me, not make it again. But even if I do, then try not to make it again. You know, just being just being very understanding with myself that we can't be who we want to be twenty four seven. But if we are making strides to being who we want to be more often than not, then that's a win. So that's part of it, just being understanding with myself, um, resting when I need to, surrounding myself with people who love me unconditionally and bring me up rather than down, um, speaking my truth and not trying to hide parts of myself from other people just to be more palatable To them or make them more comfortable because then that in turn hurts me or that in turn is what keeps me up at night why didn't i say that thing when i felt compelled to why didn't i do that thing when i felt compelled to um so those are just a a few ways that i take care of myself and and express self-love
1: when those thoughts come to your mind yeah, I don't know how to phrase this next bit, but when those thoughts come to your mind, it's usually it's a it's a huge like energy disturbance, isn't it? Yes. Really, you know, hurts your why, heart. Yeah. Why didn't I say that? Why didn't I say that then? Why didn't I get one up then? Why am I thinking about this now and so regretful? Um,
0: so yeah, I'm glad you tried to. You need to be actually. kind with yourself, right? You. Like uh, I have a a close friend who was at a party the other day. And there were (laughs) there were three black people present out of I don't know how many people, maybe 100, 100 and so. And he said he has he has he has locks. And he said that he felt a tugging on his hair and he turned around and it was it was a white woman. And she said, don't mind me. And he just laughed it off. And then later in the night, he felt tugging again on his locks. And it was the same or uh, the, uh, the same white woman's friend. And they were just giggling saying, you know, don't don't mind me. And he just laughed it off again. But he expressed to me that afterwards he felt so weak because he should have said, don't touch my hair. Like, don't touch me. But he laughed it off. And I told him in those situations, while while not trying to blow it out of proportion, they are mildly traumatizing. Because as a black person, we are so often engineered to try to make the other people feel more comfortable, right? And not disturb them. So that's why you laugh it off instead of saying something. But then afterwards, it's like you were saying, there's this energy disturbance. And I said, you need to be kind to yourself. Um, don't beat yourself up about it. It's just if the opportunity presents itself in the future, say something if you can. But for us, it's, it's often a matter of survival, if there's only three of us in one scenario, you don't want to make a scene because then there's 97 other people that would be like, chill out. Don't make it a big deal. Don't be the angry black person. Yeah.
1: You yeah. know, this is why we should never have invited you here. Oh, this stuff. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Uh,
1: um, okay. You are at a point in your life where, you're, where you feel really disconnected. What do you do to reconnect?
0: Whoa. Uh, Reconnect with myself, with other people. With other people, with your work. How do you reconnect
1: with those things Mm -hmm. that make you feel grounded and
0: together? Mm -hmm. Um, The first thing is nature. Mm -hmm. I go out into nature if and when possible just by myself. I truly feel as though all the answers... (laughs) that we seek are to be found in nature and we're just quiet with it for an hour or two. Um, so yeah, nature helps me reconnect with myself in terms of reconnecting with other people. It's simply spending time with them. It doesn't even have to be in person. It could be over the phone, just catching up with them and receiving their love and giving love and care to them as well and letting them know that they are of importance and value to me and vice versa. As for connecting with my work, um, that's a, that's a tougher one. Um, For me, I'm not the type of person who waits for inspiration, Um, but that doesn't mean that I am um, always bringing the same energy to my work or to the page. Um, One way that I reconnect with my work is ask myself, why am I even doing it? (laughs) What's the point? And I need to be able to go back to the answer that feels strongest to me. Another question that helps me is, who am I creating this for? What do I want them to feel? How does it feel for me to be creating? um but sometimes I have to walk away and then go into nature listen to some music or just take a take a break with with this first book Black Buck I wasn't really taking breaks because my time was more finite than it is now but with what I'm working on now um sometimes I need a day sometimes I need a a couple days to sort myself out and then get back to it with the same verve and, and vigor what are you working on can you say yeah, I'm working on a second book, and I can say it now because the news is out. Oh. Uh, we announced, yeah, we announced last week that um, we had sold it to my same uh, my same editor, and I'll just read it uh, the announcement. Author of Black Buck, Matteo Scarapor's Invisible Faces, weaving speculative elements, political intrigue, and high-stakes adventure to tell the story of a young woman, invisible by birth and relegated to second-class citizenship, who sets off on a mission to find her older brother, whom she had presumed dead, but who is now the primary suspect in a high-profile political murder, pitched us for fans of N.K. Jemisin and House of Cards blah, 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 blah. So <laughs> it's very different than Black Buck. This isn't Black Buck, man. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't yeah, looking yeah. to write another Black Buck in the startup world and any of that. People were saying, oh, can we get a sequel? I said, maybe in a decade. I can't yeah. do that
1: right now. I was gonna actually ask you, it was one of the questions I had was the use of um, satire and comedy in, in the way that you, in the way that you decided to go forth with Black Work. Yeah. Um, do you wanna just talk on that just briefly?
0: Sure. So, you know, people label Black Buck as satire, and that's how it was marketed, so I can't really blame them, and that's fine. I've never personally labeled it as satire myself. There are satirical elements, there are uh, some absurd elements, but from having conversations with so many people, I've come to terms with the fact that absurdity is truly in the eye of the beholder. Like, what's, <laughs> what what you and I would think isn't absurd and is just reality, there are other people who say, would something like this ever actually happen? Um, and there are, the, the, the truth of the matter is that I picture all of this actually happening. I could see every single thing in this book happening despite how wild it is. Um, but the satirical elements, the absurdist elements, those are in the book because that's just the way that my mind works. You know, when, when we experience a tragedy in this world, I feel it myself and it hurts. But then a day or two later, I see the absurdity in it all, right? Racism is horrible. Full stop. It is devastating on the daily for people who look like us and other people who are experienced in other ways, um, just as you know, sexism and and what have you. But there's also some absurdity in it all. You're like, really? People really care about this thing, or people are really up in arms about this thing mm. that could be so innocuous and mundane that they're upset about someone wearing a shirt saying this or or people saying Black Lives Matter when, uh, of course, right? Um, So that's just the way that my mind works. And I imprinted it onto the pages of this novel. Um, And uh, yeah, that's, that's all I can really say there. I wanted the novel to be engaging. I wanted there to be humor, to underscore the horror of what Darren then Buck experiences. And that was a risk because lines are blurred to the point where people read the book and they're like, whoa, what was what? You know, what was he trying to say with this? Or what was he trying to do with that? And I took that risk on purpose so that the burden or the responsibility would be placed on the reader to then make sense of it and to make sense of themselves. Because I truly believe that this book, it's a mirror that serves as a reflection of wherever the reader is at in their own life.
1: Mm-hmm. Hear that. Um, I'm looking forward to reading. Uh, obviously getting wait, man. Let deeper me know what you're into- saying. Get different to Black Buck, and then also Invisible yeah. Faces. I think those are going to be two two colorful books on my bookshelf outside ah, of outside yeah. of all of the nonfiction that I have to <laughs> read. But yeah, I love to, I love breaking myself away from from the realities of the world to the fictional realities of the world. Yeah. I think that's something that is um, definitely needed. Um, final question. What do you have more faith in? Optimism or hope?
0: Damn. This is a good one. You're making me think, man. Yeah, optimism. this is what
1: this is what it is when you come to time to talk and you and optimism. you know it. So when you come on next, optimism very. or
0: health or, or excuse me, hope. What yeah. do I have more faith in? Um, I would say, damn, this is tough because they could easily be looked at as synonyms in some ways, mm-hmm. right? Because you would think that everyone, uh, maybe not as we go deeper or as I go deeper into it, I would say optimism. Optimism for me more so feels like a choice and a state of mind and um the belief that the world has more good than bad when i think about hope and there's nothing wrong with it of course but i more so perceive it to be the wish that certain things will happen or come to fruition versus me doing what i can to affect that change and maybe this is the American in me, right? We are perceived to be a lot of things, a lot of things that aren't, aren't the best, but something that I do appreciate about America is its idealism, right? And, and I am a, an idealist as well in believing that I can exert some level of control and be the master of my destiny, even if that is actually a fallacy and there's nothing I can control in my life. So I would, I would say that I have more faith and optimism,
1: okay i like that i like that answer um Mateo, it was amazing having you on the show just to chat to you in general i think you've got an amazing mind and you've got some brilliant stuff out there out there and coming um and i'm looking forward to hearing what people think about it over here mm. and you know keep going man hell yeah man it's, it's amazing stuff that you've got there and um where can people find you if you want them to find you
0: yeah. Um, they can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Ask Mateo, A-S-K-M-A-T-E-O. And my email is in the bio of uh, both of those social media platforms. And feel free to email me at Alex. I mean, this was an incredible conversation to have on this still sunny morning in Brooklyn. Uh, thank you for your questions that really, <laughs> really, as you can tell, really made me think uh, your energy and just your openness. This was uh, This was a pleasure
1: thank you thank you well guys you know where to find me but also you know where to find the rest of the conversation and make sure you drop any comments that you have on the show and just holler at me and we'll talk more next week
0: bye cheers